This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. And welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. So we've got another special today, haven't we? We have. So we are going to interview Richard Walker. Uh, He's been in the news this week in a political sense, but he's also the boss of Iceland. He took over the business from his dad, Malcolm Walker. Everyone knows what Iceland is, but it's got thousand stores, employs about 30,000 people, turns over about four billion pounds a year. Nowhere near as big as the big supermarkets, but still a a significant player, particularly for people on low incomes. I first sort of got to know him a bit two or three years ago when he started campaigning to an extent on behalf of his customers about how they were struggling to buy food, given the fact that prices were soaring, particularly for energy and then for food. So uh, he became a, a sort of political figure in the general sense. But then he tried to become a Tory MP, didn't succeed, and is now saying he's backing Keir Starmer and Labour, which is why he's very much in the news this week. So a ton of stuff to talk to him about, both about something that matters to all of us, which is the future, particularly of food retailing, but also about the political climate. Yeah, here's our interview with Richard Walker. And um, Richard, thank you so much uh, for joining us. You're, you're in the headlines a lot this week, aren't you? So that's something we definitely want to talk about, you crossing the political divide. But before that, can we talk a bit about you and, and Iceland, because Iceland, of course, is a business your dad set up in 1970. You weren't even born then. So it was 10 years before you were born, wasn't it? So what was it like for you then as a kid with your, your dad running this big business? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, a, it's a great honour and it's nice to, to chat to you. Yes, uh, indeed. Um, Iceland was started by dad in 1970 and also my mum. She thought of the name Iceland and dad wanted to call it Penguin, which would have been <laughs> a disaster. Um, and I don't, don't think it would have been the business it was today. And it was, you know, it was incredible growing up around this because it consumes your life, you know, in terms of an, an entrepreneurial kind of journey like that. They, they started with one small shop. He was very working class background from 
Huddersfield. Um, he got a job uh, sweeping the floors at Woolies and he worked with them for seven years, eventually built his way up to become a manager. But he was always wanting to be an entrepreneur. He sold strawberries on the Horseshoe Pass in North Wales. And him and mum set up a fish and chip shop. At the same time, he also went to Lewis's department store in Leeds and he saw them selling loose scoop frozen peas from behind the counter. Uh, so he stole the idea, which is fine. It's okay to steal it as long as you do it slightly better. And he was moonlighting from Woolies. And mum would uh, do the, uh, the checkout and dad would work the stock. And at the end of the first week, they calculated they turned a small profit. But he got everything on credit because he didn't have any money. They relied on mum's salary, actually. Mum was a teacher. So that enabled him to be an entrepreneur. But eventually they realized they didn't need the chippy anymore. He got sacked from Woolies because he was basically moonlighting. And then it's been a success ever since. And, and now we have a thousand stores and employ 30,000 people. It was pretty successful pretty fast, wasn't it? When you were first conscious, so you were born in 80. So let's say when you're five, six, seven, does it already feel like a successful business? Yeah, because he floated it in 89. And that obviously was a huge turning point for the business. Um, he also bought a rival frozen food chain called B-Jam. You used well, to I was work gonna, there, I'm going gonna, gonna, gonna to talk to you about that because yeah. my very first... <laughs> job when I was 13 I was underage uh it was my Saturday <laughs> job I worked in BJAM and oh, no uh, one of my one of my <laughs> earliest professional memories is being locked in the huge freezer cabinet and being told to the freezer room and being told to clean it out and um <laughs> they also sacked me because I refused to work weeknights in fact I had this conversation with a manager who said he said we want you to work weeknights uh, and I said I wouldn't and he said well we're gonna have to let you go I didn't have the clue what that meant so I said <laughs> So I said, I'll see you next week. And then he uh, then he said, no, you, you, you're finished. You can't work. I cried all the way home. Oh, but did it was you? A, I did. Oh, no. But why wouldn't you work weeknights? Because when else were you going to work? But the um, weekends? Just weekends because I wanted to do my homework. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Ed, your retail career didn't work out. If you want to give it another shot, give me a call. It taught me resilience. But you bought B-Jam, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, I bought B-Jam. Uh, we floated it. I'm making it sound like it was a straight line to success. But of course, like any entrepreneurial story, it certainly wasn't. And... If I look back through 53 years, dad's owned all of it, none of it. He was kicked out because there was a, a share sale scandal. We've been owned by outside investors, private equity. And actually now we've come full circle and you know it's a private family business once again. Does the family own all of it or do you have backers? Uh, just over 50%. Who, who owns the rest? Uh, one other family who also work in the business. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's a family business, but it's also a business of families and we've got generations of, of people that work for it at every layer. So it is quite a unique thing because it's a four billion pound turnover business, but we, you know, we own it privately and, and we can make the right decisions for the long term. But I, I should add because of all, all this kind of ups and downs when I was growing up and obviously dad being a, a total legend, the last thing I wanted to do when I qualified uh, from uni was sell frozen peas for a living. And I, I was really keen to plow my own furrow and do my own things. Did you have that conversation with him then? Like, did he say to you, right, son, I want you to take the reins and you were like, no chance. No, it, do you know what? He never, he never pushed it. In fact, the idea was never entertained, which probably shows what faith he had in me. But um, a lot of my childhood, he just happened to be the boss, but it was a public company. So it was never really on the cards. So and did you never like me even sweep the bloody floors? Yeah. I mean, I had jobs, you know, uh, growing up in shops and head office. But yeah, I, I, I really wanted to do my own thing and prove 
to myself as much as other other people that I could uh, succeed on my own account. So I qualified as a um, chartered surveyor for a company called Jones Lang LaSalle in London. And um, I ended up setting up a, a property fund living in and working in Poland full time for three or four years. And we sold that. And then we still have Bywater Properties today, which um, is actually a, a, quite a big property company now, uh, developing commercial offices around the UK. And it's got backing from a huge Japanese company. So they've, they've got a, a one billion pound war chest to spend on uh, carbon neutral timber framed offices around the UK. And, and so, what, do you, how much of that do you own? Well, there's, there's lots of different pots and kind of management vehicles, but I've got a, a stake in the management vehicle. Um, there's two guys operationally who run the business and they've got the other stake. But um, all the, the money now comes from Sumitomo Forestry Corporation, who are a fantastic partner to have because, like us, they think very long term. They're very interested in the green agenda. And we really are doing cutting edge uh, developments now. If you come in on the train past Waterloo, you, you see the former Costa Roastery site. And we're developing the largest timber framed office building in the UK. It's 62,000 square feet. It's opposite the Houses of Parliament in Lambeth. So, um, yeah, that's, that's my other life. So how did you then end up taking over from your dad then? If you were doing well outside of the, the supermarket and frozen goods world, what made yeah. you go into it? Well, two things happened. Um, dad, uh, with a consortium, bought the business private again. It wasn't quite the share shareholding it is now where we own all of it, but um, it, it was a private company once again. And therefore, it felt like a you know, a family business once again. But secondly, my mum, my late mum, who died actually three years ago yesterday, she was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. And it, it was just kind of two things that really kind of focused my mind because I just felt like, you know, it was as much her legacy as well. And I only had a passing knowledge of the business from around the, the breakfast table. And I, I wanted to, you know, try and understand this incredible business that she'd been as much a part of as well. And and also, I suppose, you know, early onset is is uh, highly hereditary. And it just made me think like, wow, you know, I'm in my 30s now and my time might be limited and actually give it a go, you know. So I went to see dad. I don't know why, but it was in some posh hotel in London. What year was that? This was 2013. Um, and I'd moved back from Poland. We'd, we'd set up Bywater Properties in London. We were doing okay, but I, I, I had this itch that I wanted to scratch. And I said to dad, I want to give Iceland a go. And he straight faced, and this was like, you know, this was a conversation that was 30 years waiting to happen. And he shot back he's in his Yorkshire way. He said, don't bother, collect rents. It's much easier. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. That's, that's it, is it? Is that the conversation <laughs> over? Um, and I don't know if that was re reverse psychology or, you know, or what, but we agreed a plan, which was for me to work in, in the shops in London as a frontline colleague for a year, best year of my life. Um, what did you do? It was great. Well, for the first couple of months, I had this weird dual life where on a Monday I'd wear my suit and go into Mayfair and be a property spiv. And then Tuesday to Saturday, I put on my clip on time, a name badge, and I go to Iceland Greenford and bang out some frozen. Um, <laughs> So it, it was a strange dual life, but um, <laughs> eventually kind of a, I started working in the shops full time. I did everything, drove the van on the checkout, worked the stock. And I, I did qualify as, as a store manager, just about scraped by in uh, Iceland Twickenham. And so I did loads of different shops around London and it was the best year of my life. And I say that honestly, because 
it really is quite humbling when you understand like how hard our colleagues work you know and this amazing life and opportunity that i have it's all because we have 30,000 incredible people and also you learn about the business from the the bottom up and a lot of the daft decisions that that we make in head office so it was a really invaluable year isn't it unbelievably stressful particularly in the early stage working for your dad um i mean i spent quite a lot of my life running away from some of the things that my dad was interested in. Because um, yeah. I think there just is a lot, you know, because you sort of set yourself up for judgment by this quite important man in your life. Yeah. How, did you, how did you find that psychologically? Tough. And I, I still find it tough, to be honest. We, we went out for dinner the other night and uh, had a bottle of wine. And he said, um, what did he say? He said, you know, I've come to the realisation you'll never be as hungry as I was. And it, <laughs> things, things like that just really piss me off, you know. <laughs> it's like uh, I'm trying, um, but uh, yeah, you know, he's he doesn't give praise lightly. He is obviously proud of like everything I've done and how I've thrown myself into the business. But there will always be that father son dynamic, and actually, that is broader as well because I'll never forget the first week I started in head office. There was some article in the Times, and and some it was a really odd. It was the boss of AO. He just floated. He, he was like, there was a lot of hubris, and he said, "But my kids, you know, they're never going to come into the business." It's like Richard Walker. He'll always just be Malcolm Walker's son, you know. And I did realize in that moment, like, I've just got to do this for me, you know. I've got, I've got to do it my way. I've never got to try and emulate Dad because that's impossible. But I can add to Iceland, and I can kind of follow my own journey. And I think, to be honest, I've done a pretty good job of that over the last 10 years so now you're running it how is it going what's it like and how stressful is it well it's very different to the property game you know we will work on like a planning decision that might take five years uh so transactionally it's a bit different because we've got you know we t we're turning over 80 million pound a week and average basket spends just over 10 quid so very high transactions very fast paced and it is stressful but I think the only thing that keeps me up at night is people. You know, I just want to make sure that we're doing our best for our people. And inevitably, that there are issues and, and problems and things to work out. But we are an incredible company. We're trading very well. I mean, we do trade well, I suppose, you know, when, when times are, are tough. But actually, we've really broadened our appeal. We're not just Iceland shops anymore. We have the food warehouse, which is something I started almost um, well, seven, eight years ago, which is like a, a cross between Iceland and Costco. That's the fastest growing retailer, we like to say, uh, this century because we're opening 30 shops a year. I was in there last week, actually. Oh, there you go. Yeah. yeah. Which one? <laughs> uh, the one in Newcastle, like North Shields area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Thank you. Well, I was going to say, you and I first met, um, I mean, it's two or three years ago now, when you took a decision, which is quite unusual in the corporate sector, um, to stand up and become more of a public figure because yeah. you were very concerned about what was happening with cost of living and people not being able to afford to pay for basics. Um, it's very unusual for business people to take what would be, I think most people would say, a sort of political position. Well, why did you do that? Um I mean, firstly, um, I, I think I, I started doing more public stuff because of our environmental moves. You know, we were removing plastic from our packaging. We eliminated palm oil. That was a huge issue at the time. And I, I am a big environmentalist. You know, well, I like to 
to try and do things that are that are green. And and actually, Iceland was quite an unusual platform to do that because our customers, you know, some of them are, are struggling to make ends meet. And actually, we were an unusual kind of sustainable business champion in that sense. Because your costs were therefore going to be higher. Is that what you're saying? Um, no, just because our customers are not in a echo chamber where they can afford to pay more for the privilege of being green. You know, if you go to some competitors, their sustainable products cost more money. And for me, that's not scalable, you know, and, and a lot of the uh, initiatives that we were taking, plastic-free packaging, uh, getting out of palm oil, um, that we, it was not an option to pass um, cost on to our customers because they can't afford it. And, uh, and, and I found that quite interesting because, you know, we obviously are in a climate emergency. There's a lot of issues. And I, I thought, well, you know, we can, we can actually do something quite interesting here because if we can do it, then that is genuinely quite scalable. That's how change will happen. So I started talking about that. Obviously, cost of living, I think we particularly had a moment where, you know, we, we really needed to step up for our customers. But increasingly, I wanted to kind of speak for them and potentially where, where they can't. And I, th- I think it's quite important, actually, to, to call out some of the issues around the UK and, and to try and help. I do have this sort of sense of trying to help and public service, I suppose. Um, and that's, that's why. But um, yeah, I, I also believe that business does need more of a face. I mean, in other countries, America, for example, for better or worse, but you know, I think businessmen and women are, are more likely and it's more usual for them to, to have a, a public profile. Whereas in the UK, I mean, you know, I'd never seen the boss of Fujitsu before until he was apologizing for, for um, stuff. So I, I do think that it's really important that actually we, we, do, we do show more of a face. So are you enjoying now being more of a face? Because, I mean, you've been in the papers this week. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, do, I, I suppose I do have an ego as well. And um, What does your family say about it? <laughs> uh, what does dad say? He says, uh, get off the telly and get back in the shops. <laughs> Um, but you know, he was always actually, I'm sort of following in his tradition. He was quite the personality and profile in his own time as well. He was, I remember, I mean, mean, I've spoken to him many times over the years. And the parties, that was what I always used to like reading about is the Iceland work parties. They always sounded mega, didn't they? Yeah, which is our secret weapon, you know, because we, we've been voted the best big company to work for twice. And that's because we try and treat our staff really well, you know, and uh, happy staff means happy customers who put money in the till. Well, is it good for business being um, a publicly recognisable or a, a, a known voice, a known face? Or is it, or, or does it damage the business? Um, you, you gotta be, you, you've got to be careful and always do it through a lens of what is, what is right for the, the business. But I think there's no harm in um, calling out issues, speaking on behalf of our customers and actually, our colleagues love it. You know, if if I'm getting ripped apart by you or Piers Morgan or whoever, they they quite enjoy that. But, but I suppose because we're a private business, so if I go on Question Time or whatever, I'm not terrified to say the wrong thing and offend the shareholders because I'm only offending myself. Tons more to delve into, but let's have a quick break. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? 
Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. We talked a bit about your campaigns on things like, you know, cost of living and, and, yeah. and climate change, but you also wanted to be a Tory MP. So can we, have you been in, interested in party politics all your life? Where does that come from, just as a, a starting point? Yeah, I was I was never, you know, in this um, the political kind of parties at, at Durham Uni where I went or, uh, you know, I was, I've always had an interest in, in kind of politics, but never been actively engaged. But I, I suppose the deeper I got into Iceland, traveling around the country, we are, to be honest, a perfect barometer of Britain. And I, I, d I did start to see and hear and feel a lot of the issues that I think our customers are facing and sort of had a, a growing urge to to try and help. And um, it's all very well sort of being a, a business commentator or whatever, but I, I was very keen to, to try and be a, a player on the pitch as well. And, um, and that's really how, how I got, got involved in, in politics. And your dad is, you know, he's a big Tory supporter. He's, I think he's given money. He's been a big Tory yeah. supporter. Uh, was that why you went to the Tories initially? Um, it, it, Probably in part was because like many people, you grow up voting a certain way. And I've always voted Tory because I assumed they were the natural party of business. So yes, I mean, in part, I think I, I just assumed that, that they would be my natural home. You say dad's a big Tory supporter. I mean, he's not anymore. He's sick, sick to death of, of the infighting, the squabbling and, and also some of, the, some of the problems, you know. Interestingly, things like sewage in the rivers, you know, pe people like him get really exercised about that. I think I was a bad Tory because I didn't want poo in the sea. Uh, and I was told off. I was chairman of Surfers Against Sewage because I'm a, a big um, climber and surfer. And uh, I, um, yeah, I, I was speaking out again <laughs> against the issue of sewage. But as a candidate at CCHQ were telling me to stop speaking out about it. So, so tell us about your experience of being a candidate. How many, did, was it just the one seat you, you went for? I can't remember. No, I wasn't allowed to go for any because I was blocked. So I went through... The, the hoops and I got on the candidates list and they gave me a comprehensive pass, which they don't give me many of those out. And that means you can apply for any seat anywhere in the country, except they put a deferment against my name. And that deferment meant that I wasn't allowed to apply for any seat. What does that mean? Sorry, I'm being thick. I don't understand what that means. I know, and nor did I. And I think they sort of made it up and it was a bit of an excuse. But um, they said, don't worry. It's because you don't have enough local party political experience. And I thought, fair enough. You know, who do, who do I think I am? You know, big businessman expecting to parachute in. So I pretty diligently for, for the best part of a year stuffed leaflets and you know, went to local party uh, conferences and spoke at events and got to know, you know, different different layers of, of the professional party. Um, and then I applied again to have it removed. And they said, look, 
we're we're not very happy with your media profile and speaking out against sewage, for example. Um, and then last year, I went. To, I actually summited Everest. I, I uh, raised a million quid uh, to to raise um, to the building for a, a rare dementia support center. That was sort of in memory of Mum. And I stood on top of the world, and I thought. I've done this, but the Tories, they still don't bloody want me. So I'm going to get back down and I'm going to go home and I'm going to apply for a third and final time to have this flipping deferment notice lifted. And um, I had a very strange meeting with them when I got back because the first meeting I got, uh, I did after Everest. And they said, look, the committee has met again. And no, we won't, we won't lift the deferment. And at that point, they didn't even give me a reason. Um, so it was pretty clear that ultimately they didn't want me. So some people might say then your move to Labour now is because you're a bit bitter. Uh, yeah, sour grapes. Yeah, um, yeah that, that 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 has been uh, banded around. Look, I think I think I was pissed off, of course, but it became increasingly clear to me, as, especially when my local constituency came up at Ed, Edisbury, where I live, lived all my life, and I wasn't allowed to apply for it, even though the local members were lobbying CCHQ to to try and get me to run as their candidate. It just became increasingly clear to me that the Tory party of today was was not one that I recognised and actually not the home for me that I thought it was because issues I really care about, like sewage, also food banks. I was told to pipe down about the alarming rise of, of food banks. I, I, just, um, I just couldn't kind of square it anymore. And I sort of realised that as the Tories were steadily drifting away from these values and principles that I've long held, actually Labour have completely reformed themselves and have moved towards the sort of issues that, that I really care about. So tell us about the process that's led you to decide to make a public statement that you're now supporting Labour. Well, I, I've always, you know, I meet any politician and I, I've, you know, I, I've, uh, I've met the leaders of all the, the parties, um, but I was sort of aware that this, this would be quite a, a, a big move to make. But I started to kind of meet more of the, the Labour front bench, obviously Keir and Rachel Reeves, and start to talk to them about their plans for, for the UK um, and what they do to kind of help the high street and people like my customers. And over a kind of period of quite a long period, to be fair, um, it sort of became increasingly aware that actually what they're now saying and aiming to do and their their five key missions are the right sort of um, principles and values and priorities, rather, I should say, for uh, my business, uh, the environment especially, and our customers. I think the environmental issue was something that that was a real kind of bitter pill and left a real uh, bad taste in my mouth because the, the Tories now are kind of treating the environment as a sullied afterthought and rowing back on you know a, a lot of um, their ambitions uh, in terms of the green agenda. And I, I was just pretty disgusted by that. And I really like the ambition in Labour's green prosperity plan. But, but some would say that Rachel Reeves too has softened that. Um, the 28 billion uh, is hardly mentioned at all. It's a sort of mm. aspiration rather than a commitment. This is the 28 billion that they had been promising to invest every year in green investments. So you'd be disappointed that they've softened that? Um, well, if if they will soften it, um, then then yes, you know, and and I'm not joining the Labour Party. I'm not seeking to be a, a member. I'm not I'm not trying to be a, an MP. And actually, I'm quite enjoying my newfound freedom to speak out without fear or favour. So, yeah, I, I will be a 
critical friend to them as well. And I think, you know, they've, they've laid out the ambition, obviously, you know, and this, these are the funny political times we're in, but Labour are absolutely, you know, going for stability and fiscal prudence. And that, that has to be the case. So I, I understand it has to be in the confines of, uh, of what's possible. But, you know, we can't underestimate the scale of the challenge and the money that's needed to, to do it. Whoever wins this election, though, is going to, well, potentially with Labour, inherit a lot of problems, a lot of expensive problems. As a business person, what what are you worried about the most? You know, you, you talk about the cost of living, obviously inflation is a big issue. Mm. What is it that's kind of keeping you awake that you want to see the government do something about? Yeah, I mean, inf- inflation obviously has been a, a really big issue. You can imagine our fridges and freezers, how our electricity bill shot up last year. And that was that was really quite a worry. Um uh, a year or so ago, um, because we're also unhedged in our energy. We've, we've actually bought forward and secured that now and prices have come down. So we're in a much, much better position. But, and, you know, the, the Bank of England will, will continue to do what they do and global commodities will as well. So inflation is starting to come down. Is the Red Sea crisis worrying you at all on that? Um, do you know, not, not, not really. Um, because we're mostly frozen food, we can kind of, we can supply and, and build stocks longer. I mean, basically, you just go around the bottom, which will add a bit of cost and time. But at the moment, we're in a very strong position on that. But we'll, we're watching it and we'll, we'll see what happens. We have the national minimum wage, which is coming in uh, in April. Absolutely the right thing to do. I'm a major supporter, but that, you know, that does add a lot of, of cost. So there's headwinds there. But I think overall, We've just got to try and get growth back into the economy. I mean, that's, you know, I think the sense of malaise that we have as a nation and the sense of decay on some of our high streets and in our communities is is down to uh, a lack of growth and ultimately a lack of productivity. The Labour Party is cracking down on non-DOM tax status. Obviously, you know, you can't possibly be non-DOMs, but Mm. is your business wholly owned in the UK, do you pay all yeah. UK tax? Yeah, we're dead simple actually. And uh, Dad always says, like, it's like changing lanes on the motorway when the traffic's building up. It's, it's never worth it anyway. So <laughs> we've always just kept it really simple. And so you're a UK registered business. And yeah. You, and, and you, yeah. You, you pay tax here. Yeah. 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 There's nothing funny. Um, we're actually registered in Wales, biggest business in Wales now. So yeah, we um, we're just a proud UK business, and and uh, I think. Obviously, morally, that's that's absolutely right, and we sh- those with the broader shoulders should pay their way. I've always always been a believer in that. You've got lots and lots of low income customers, and you've been championing them uh, over the last few years in your public statements. We've got Rachel Reeves today saying Labour wouldn't reinstate the cap on bankers' bonuses. How do you think that will go down with your customers? Yeah, I've I've only just seen that, but um, I mean it. It's a, it's an interesting one. I mean, I suppose you could take a a view that you know it 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 would be futile. The the bankers might go elsewhere, so actually the economic argument might be quite different. But obviously, the feeling that some of our customers have that you know the rich get richer and are getting away with it and uh, exploiting loopholes, I think that's obviously um, something that has to be weighed in the balance as well. Can I just ask you a bit about, uh, you know, you talk about sustainability and how important the environment is to you. Yeah. Another big problem we have in this country is the obesity crisis. Mm. A lot of that comes from the kind of processed, ultra processed foods. You guys sell a lot of those. Is, is that something 
that you're, you know, you're ever going to change or you're thinking about as a business? This is a really interesting one because we're in the market we're in and our customers want to buy the products they want to buy, but we have a, we have an obligation to nudge and to, to try and kind of make people make the right choices. If you like, I don't believe in, uh, the nanny state and, and I think there's a lot of unintended consequences of rules that come in, like, you know, some of the high fat, salt and sugar regulations, um, which actually aren't really applicable in reality. But uh, yeah, we've, we've ran a study with Southampton University about where we place our fresh fruit in store. So we're, we're trying to put that in the first aisle now in every store. We've really expanded our scratch cooking ranges um, in Frozen. What does that mean? Sorry. Uh, scratch cooking is, you know, the sort of raw ingredients, if you like. Oh, it's sort of proper cooking is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Only 16% of what we sell are, are ready meals. And actually, I'm very proud of the quality of, of that. You know, people, there, there is a lot of um, incorrect stigma around frozen food in this country that it, it might be worse for you. But actually, I'm very proud of the quality, the provenance of what we sell because, you know, you, you've got to be proud of, of the products. And um, yeah, you know, I buy it myself and, and um, we're, tr- we're trying to do what we can. We've also developed ranges with Slimming World, with, with My Protein, sort of high protein meals. We're a very different business now to what we were 10 years ago. And that is continuing to move. And it's saying 16% is ready meals. Do like frozen sausage rolls count in that? Because, you know, there's other things that you sell that are not just ready meals that are processed. No, that's true. Yeah. Um, no, it, no, it doesn't. So pre, uh, prepared meals was, was kind of the frozen ready meal, which is obviously the, the thing that people think of. But of course, you know, I'm, I'm not saying we're, we're whiter than white. And is your labelling changing? Is it is is it easier for people to see what's high processed and might not be so good for them, or are you just relying on people's common sense? Uh, no, we um, we we are trying to label, you know, uh, particular kind of um, healthy products, or like I said, we've started kind of online and recipe blogs and in-store recipe cards. Um, but I also think. Just looking at the retailers, it is more systemic than that. And we've got to look at education, you know, bringing back things like home economics, giving people the tools and ability to make informed choices for themselves. And also the manufacturers. I was, I was actually quite a big fan of things like the sugar tax, because if you can start to um, change things at source, then it, it, it makes the whole supply chain. I thought you said you were against the nanny state. Isn't that, isn't that the definition of the nanny state? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, no, yeah, true, true. <laughs> but I, I think I, what I'm trying to say is too much regulation around where to put products has unintended consequences and, and is not enforceable and doesn't work anyway. So, you know, I, I would just caution a little bit around over-regulation in terms of merchandising is, is what I'm saying. And um, Before we let you go, can I just ask you some kind of big picture stuff in, in, in the sense of where you see Iceland in the future? Because as things stand, what you You've got about, what, two and a half percent market share compared yeah. to the other supermarkets. You're a minnow compared to Tesco. Yeah, you? we are. Absolutely. Do you They're want ten, to change 10 that? times bigger. Yeah, we're <laughs> going over the hill that, you know, we've got Tesco coming the other side and we're going over the hill with our pea shooters. Um, so our secret weapon is, is the communities that we serve and our staff. And that's why we've been... Uh, continuing to grow. And actually, there's only the German discounters and ourselves who who have grown steadily over recent years. How do you think you survived? The, because the German discounters, I mean, the massive investment in the UK, that, was, there, was yeah. there a moment when you thought they would put you out of business? Um, I, it was a little bit before my time, but they undoubtedly disrupted the market. And it's very difficult to compete with someone who's happy to make no money you know, speak to a bookseller about competing against Amazon. It is very difficult. But actually now we're in a really 
good place, I believe, as a, as a business to to keep growing and to keep serving. Because, like I said, we have the food warehouse. We have a massive online business that we've really invested in. Aldi and Lidl don't have that. We do more online deliveries a week than Ocado now. We've got partnerships with uh, with Uber Eats, uh, with Deliveroo. We've got a growing international business. Have you? What's uh, the international business? Uh, so a lot of it is wholesaling. So we, we wholesale to over 50 uh, countries. We've got a partnership with Duns in Ireland, who are a, a fabulous retailer over there. So yeah, we, we continue to look for opportunities and our frozen range. You, your ownership structure has changed so many times. Yeah. Will you ever try and take money out? Um, no. And we, ha- we haven't had a dividend for, for, for well, I, I can't remember, um, well over a decade. So, so what, you're um, all just paid salaries, basically? Yeah, and we continue to reinvest in the business. We have a great saying, we're long-term greedy. You know, there, there is no point taking out excessive dividends, um, overly indebting yourself, um, because y- you need those solid foundations, particularly in a game as competitive as UK food retail. We don't want a business that, that's built on sand. I very much want Ison to be here in another 53 years. So. And is this for your mum? Because it was quite interesting, you know, talking about how it was, in the end it was your mum who, in a sense, was the, the, the person. The brains got, behind the operation. Brains behind the operation, yeah. but also exactly. it was her illness that meant changed your life, really. You, that's why you wanted to get into the business. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> It's that legacy I said I wanted to to add to. Yeah, and what about your kids then? Are you <laughs> are you going to prime them to take over one day, or are you going to take the same tack as your dad and keep telling them not to do it? Yeah, well, yeah. Now I won't tell them not to do it, but I'll definitely take the same tack as dad in terms of they've they've just got to do their own thing. You know, I've got two daughters, and one is absolutely fascinated with wildlife and and animals, and I think you know that that is a real passion, and she should follow those dreams, but. The other one is obsessed with football. Um, but whatever they do, they've just got to work really, really hard at it. And I, I think if you are fortunate in life, it's no excuse for not working hard and trying your best. And I've always believed in that. And finally, when your dad saw you splashed all over the Guardian this week, what did he say? <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, it was his idea. So uh, he what? really... <laughs> was it really? He, well... Maybe as a joke, but he said, uh, well, they've treated you so badly and, and you're not getting any sense out of them. Why don't you switch? Um, and I think he, he thought nothing of it. And then uh, a few months later, I said, you know, you mentioned it. Well, actually, here's <laughs> uh, an article in The Guardian and we've got a visitor coming in an hour's time to Ison Warrington. Did he come along and meet Keir Starmer as well? No, or not? he didn't. No, <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> no, he, didn't. Uh, he was away, actually, anyway. But um, I think, you know, the thing about Kia, and I think the thing that I've tried to explain to dad is people say he's boring, and whether he is or isn't, I don't know. You're talking about Keir Starmer here, not Keir Starmer. <laughs> not dad, dad. My dad, dad. is <laughs> definitely not boring. Um, but he has genuine compassion and understanding. He really gets it. But more than that, he's absolutely ruthless. And I was explaining this to dad, the way he's dismantled the more extreme elements of his party, uh, risen to the top uh, of the ranks very quickly. You know, make no mistake, he does have a real edge to him. And I think that's what we need out of a, a future leader. So dad understands why I've done it, why I've aligned myself with the party, and in particular, why I rate Keir so highly. Yeah. Excellent. Well, um, thank you so much for your time, Richard. It's been an absolute delight to chat to you. Really, really interesting. Thank you so much. No, I've really enjoyed it. The thing I want to know is, though, how many prawn rings did you eat as a kid? (laughs) 
a few. Yeah. <laughs> you're looking yeah, good in it. They're, you're looking good in it. <laughs> Their rules are stable in our, in our household. Yeah, that's for sure. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Richard. Cheers. No worries. Thank All you. the best. Thanks. All the best. I tell you what, I found that totally fascinating. That whole dynamic with his dad and his impressions of his dad were really good as well, weren't they? Yeah, he was. Look, he's a, a charming and very amusing bloke. And as you say, I, I've always been gripped by what makes family businesses tick. You know, why as a, a child you would want to work for your dad or yeah. for your for your mum. You know, we, we've been talking on a rather bigger scale, for example, about the Arnaud family and LVMH. Yeah. Um, uh, this is a, a slightly smaller British version, maybe. But he seems to be a pretty dynamic chief executive. Um, the business, as far as we can tell, is going okay. Intense you know, it's an intensely complicated, competitive mm. environment. Uh, food retailing in the UK has always been incredibly competitive uh, and challenging. You know, with 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 inflation, I think it's got even harder. So it's interesting. It was really interesting to hear him talk about all of that. I also found what he was saying about his mum and her dementia quite moving. Yeah, that was really moving. And and I think the big thing about Iceland is that, that they they do have that kind of charitable arm as well, don't they? I think it's something like thirty seven million pounds that they've donated to charity over the last fifty years. Yeah, so, they've got a charitable foundation, haven't they? Yeah. And it was also quite striking what he said about the importance for them of being British. There are lots of family-controlled businesses in the UK who shift their domiciles, shift their homes overseas to avoid paying tax. And he was talking about how they're registered in Wales. But in the end, for me, perhaps the most gripping bit of the whole thing was... The politics. Well, not so much the politics, but just the sort of, I mean, farce of being approved as a Labour, sorry, as a Tory candidate, and then being told we've approved you as a Tory candidate, but you're not allowed to be yeah. a Tory candidate. You can't stand Three in any seat. That was just so. Was, why, why do you think that is? Well, all you can assume is because he's in the centre ground. He's a sort of, you know, a, what people would call a one nation Tory. And the current Tory party has shifted rather to the mm. right. And they didn't like the kind of things he was saying about the environment and about not putting poo in the in rivers and seas. Yeah. Uh, river and the sea. And so it is sort of striking. You'd sort of assume if the Tory party wants to have a future, it's got to go back to the way that it used to be. And one of the ways that it used to be is they would welcome in with open arms uh, entrepreneurs, people yeah. who created jobs and wealth as uh, members and, and candidates. And it is sort of uh, quite embarrassing for them that he's now saying he's backing Starmer and, mm. and, and Oh, Reeves. they'll be buzzing now as well, won't they? We'll have to see what they do with him next. Although, interestingly, he said he wouldn't try and run for an MP again. I wonder if he will in a few years. We'll see. Look, he, he, like many of us, he obviously likes the sound of his own voice. So uh, we'll see. Let's, let's see what happens. Right. We better wrap this episode up. Uh, do send us in any questions or suggestions as well. Uh, rest is money at gmail.com or you can get us on our social media. Someone you might like us to interview on the show or maybe you've just got questions you want us to answer. Uh, you can contact us through those means. But well, that's it from us. Bye bye. All the best. Bye bye. 